1961, John Glenn was preparing to launch his spacecraft, the Friendship 7, to orbit around the Earth for the first time. And so many engineers and mathematicians were behind this project. They had worked, obviously, very long, very hard uh, for this particular mission. Um, We used to live, I used to live and work in Huntsville, Alabama, which is the rocket city. So I know a lot of rocket scientists, literal ones, and they, uh, I remember somebody telling me in Huntsville that we have more technology, like on this phone, than all of the first several space shuttles combined, right? So much more technology. So NASA used to rely far more on like mines than they did computers. There would be all these mathematicians and and scientists and engineers who would do all the calculations for their projects. And one of the most important NASA mines during this time in the 60s was this lady who was fairly unknown until recent years uh, named Katherine Johnson. Catherine was one of the chief mathematicians that John Glenn personally relied on and trusted to run the numbers before this particular flight. Uh, Catherine's story, along with two other women, Dorothy Vaughn and Mary Jackson, their stories are told in that book and the movie that's based on the book, Hidden Figures. It's a great movie. Um, The reason their story is so captivating is because these were three African-American women who played an incredibly important role during the 1960s space race. It's a little bit Hollywoodish in the movie, but the true stories behind all of these different women uh, are amazing. And back when they were doing these things and coming up with these calculations that were so important for NASA, their stories were not told at all in the 60s and 70s, mostly only in the black press, this kind of like version of the press that only went to African Americans in our country. And so their stories had really been hidden from the public, from the majority culture until recently. And so I love that idea, this, the name of the book, the name of the movie, such a brilliant double meaning idea, hidden figures, right? Because they are finding the hidden math figures to help NASA launch rockets into space, but they themselves are the hidden figures, hidden from the public in the work that they did in a mostly very largely white male world. Pretty much unnoticed, but they were so crucial for protecting and even saving the lives of our astronauts on their missions. Hidden figures there the whole time, but so easily overlooked. I love so much of what we've covered so far. If this is your first time here, that's, that's great. I'm glad you're here. Um, what we've covered so far has been a lot of Moses activity. Moses has been doing a ton. Every single story, he's doing a lot. In this story, he does nothing but hide and wait. But the actor in this drama is very much God himself. This is Yahweh who's doing all the work. Moses doesn't lift a staff or do some trick. He, he hides and he waits just like the rest of Israel, hoping that God will rescue them again by the blood of this perhaps easily overlooked hidden figure, the little lamb. Right there in their midst would soon become their salvation. So I want to focus on the Passover lamb. That's kind of the idea tonight in two very uh, different ways a little bit. The hope of our salvation and the assurance of our salvation. First, the lamb as the hope of our salvation. We've seen in the context of this final plague that Moses has pleaded with a hard-hearted Pharaoh so many times to free God's people, Israel, from bondage. Pharaoh, of course, has rejected Moses and his God, and things have become worse and worse for them. Now, this is the tenth plague is threatened, and this is the death of the firstborn son. You may remember how Exodus began with the death of Israel's sons. 
And now God will save Israel through the death of Egypt's firstborn sons. And while God plans to destroy and display his justice on Egypt, he makes provisions to show his mercy to Israel. So with the threat of this death of the firstborn for Egypt, God makes a provision, a hope of salvation for those who would listen to what he says. Now, I want to remind you what he said that they should do. This is really important. So through Moses, God told his people on this particular day, I want each family to find a lamb. Not just any lamb, but a lamb without any defects, as spotless as possible. And I want you to pack your bags and put on your chacos and be ready to leave the next morning. They were wearing chacos. This is biblical times. So pack your bags, put on your chacos, be ready to leave the next mornings. But before you leave, what you need to do is you need to uh, you need to kill the lamb and you need to cook the lamb. You need to eat some of it. And then you need to eat some of these other things, this this meal that they would have bread and bitter herbs. And then take some of the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorposts of the home and on the lintel, which is like the door frame. So basically cover the door frame of the home with the blood of the lamb. And God said, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where we get the term pass over. I will pass over you. No plague will come on you when I strike the land of Egypt. All right. Pause the story for a second. I want to think about this really important question and talk about what faith looks like. Faith is this big word, right? And this is such a story to show us what real faith looks like in our day too. God gave these instructions. They were so clear. Do these things and you will live. They were so clear. But you, but you know what you're thinking right now? They had to really be thinking. How in the world would this work? Like we're talking about a little animal, a lamb. Like, how will this work to save us? Don't miss the context. Don't miss that they were still slaves. They were still in slavery when God tells them to do this thing. He's telling them that his judgment is about to pass through, but all they see is plague after plague after plague after plague and nothing's getting better for them. So why is this one going to work? You you hear a little bit of the angst that I imagine some of them would feel. They're still slaves in Egypt. And he says, find a lamb, pack your bags, put on your sandals, kill the lamb, spread the blood on the door and wait. So my question for you is what what might faith look like in your life considering this passage? What might faith look like in your life considering this passage? Let me offer a couple things for one. Faith doesn't always seem to make the most logical sense from a human perspective in the moment. And I I think that's fair, right? Think about their context. Like they're putting their faith in in, in this blood of this lamb. Like what is that? But that's why it's faith. Faith is actually trusting in something outside of yourself to save yourself. Even when it may not make sense to you in that particular time. For instance... Many of you are seniors, and you do not know what's on the other side of May 2018. Some of you have some jobs lined up and some potential things in grad schools, but, and some of you don't know. You don't know what's on the other side of May. Faith for you may be saying no to a certain job because it's going to put you in a particular context that's not going to be healthy for your spiritual life. Even when that's the only offer. 
That's the only thing that makes logical sense. And your parents tell you you're absolutely crazy for turning that job down. But faith for you may be actually saying no to something that will put you in a position that's not healthy. Faith may be saying yes to an opportunity. This is for seniors or anybody. It may be saying yes to an opportunity that feels so full of unknowns, but you know it's going to stretch you and challenge you in your faith in a good way. It's going to be an opportunity for the Lord to draw near to you. Faith may be calling off a relationship when you know it's unhealthy, even if you can't imagine what life would be like without that person. So faith is sometimes going against what we can reason out. That's not the whole story of faith. Faith is also taking even the smallest step in obedience, even when you feel trapped. Okay, again, the context. Trapped. They're in slavery right then, yet God tells them to do this thing. So faith for you may lead you to admit that you feel trapped in many areas of your life and you don't know the way out, but God calls you to take some steps. So faith for you may be admitting that you have a problem with pornography. Like just saying that out loud, talking to a friend about it. That's an act of faith. Faith frees you to say no to that event this weekend because you know that if you go, you're going to drink too much once again. Faith allows you to humbly say, I know I've been a Christian like my whole life and everybody expects that I know everything, but I don't actually know how to study the Bible or pray. Can you help me with that? That's an act and a step of faith. Faith allows you to say counseling actually would be a good thing for me right now, even though I know it's really scary. Faith is taking even the smallest step, even when you feel trapped. Here's the point. Faith is trusting in something outside of yourself. And for the Christian, true saving faith is trusting that God really can deliver. That He really can strengthen, that He really can teach, that He really can work for your good and for your salvation, even when you do not see how in the world He will do it. That's Israel, right? They were still slaves when God told them to put blood on the doorpost. Their hope was not in their condition. Their hope was literally in the blood of the Lamb. I can just imagine the little boys and the little girls in the homes in Israel and they have this lamb and they have this lamb for a few days. And then their father like kills it. And then he cooks it. And then they take the kids are just horrified like, Daddy, what are you doing? And the dad looks at them and says, child, it's either him or it's you. Like that's what's on the line. In the homes of Israel. What are you putting your hope in? Right now. In your good plans? In your good record? In your good sense of moral right or wrong? Are you putting your hope in the promises of God Himself? That He would come through on His word for you? Both in terms of your future and also in your present salvation, that He actually can deliver you out of bondage even now. So, how does He do it? What is the basis of our hope of salvation? It's no different than that of Israel's. Our hope is in the blood of the Lamb. When John the Baptist comes on the scene in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, he's the forebearer to Christ. He's the one who's coming to announce, like an, like you know, like a. Herald of the King. He's to announce that the Messiah has come. And how does he introduce Jesus? He says, Behold, the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sins of the world. It's the way Jesus is introduced in the Gospels. Jesus Christ is the blood of the Lamb. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and His blood covers the doorposts of our own hearts that God's judgment might pass over us and fall on Him. I love this old quote from St. Augustine. This is like 4th century stuff. When he talks about the Old Testament and the New Testament relating to each other, he said the New Testament is in the Old concealed, but the Old Testament is in the New revealed. I want to say it again because it's a great line. He says the Old... No, sorry, never. The New is in the Old concealed, and the Old is in the New Revealed. In other words, Jesus is the figure hidden in the Old Testament. Now made evident through His perfect life, the spotless Lamb, His sacrificial death, His blood shed, and ultimately His powerful resurrection. One very important principle of Scripture interpretation is that when you come to something like a story that's difficult, like this one, this is a difficult story. When you come to a difficult story, you, you learn to pull back the lenses a little bit and see the one story in the context of a much larger story. You do that with any book you read, by the way, right? Like, you don't read a difficult novel and you come to chapter 7 and you're like, oh, I'm done. No, you, you know to, like, turn the page. Like, we, that's what we, we keep, like, we turn the page and we keep reading the story and see how it resolves. And so when you're reading a difficult story, even in Scripture, turn the page. Keep reading. See it in the context of the larger story, because God is writing an amazing story. And we're just in the middle of it. We're in this chapter. It's a hard chapter. But most importantly, it's important to just not only keep reading, but read it in the context of the Jesus story. To see where Jesus is at work in the middle of this story. Why did the lamb have to die? Why would God look at blood and pass over Israel? This is really an issue of forgiveness. I want to talk about forgiveness for a second. Because you know this to be true already. Forgiveness costs something. It does. Forgiveness costs something to someone, especially the one who's forgiving. For instance, imagine you have a roommate. And imagine you have problems with your roommate. Some of you are not imagining anymore. You're remembering. Um, Okay, so imagine you've got a roommate and you've got problems with your roommate. Problems, like just normal roommate problems, right? They keep eating your food without telling you. Quit looking around. (laughs) They keep wearing your clothes without asking. They keep waking you up in the middle of the night by making so much noise. They're talking. They're slamming doors. They're opening chip bags. Why are chip bags so loud at 2.30 a.m.? I'm so glad my roommate does not do that anymore. Chip bags. Anyway, so let's say for the sake of illustration, you're so frustrated with your roommate. And you reach a point where you have to confront them. You have to deal with it. And it actually goes really, really well. I know this is where we're really imagining. It actually goes so well. And they're like, oh, you're right. I'm so sorry. I have been taking all of your food. uh, Because I ran out of money. I wasted my money. And I have been taking all your food. And you're right. I have been 
wearing all of your clothes and not asking you and not washing them. And you're right, I have been keeping you up and I haven't been able to sleep and I'm just making too much noise. And they're like so, they're so repentant about it. I know, we're pretending. But they're so sorry. And they genuinely ask you to forgive them. Would you forgive me? What might forgiveness cost you in that scenario? It might cost you actual money, right? Because they've eaten your food. If you're, if you're not asking them to pay back that money, then you, you lost money by forgiving them for eating your stuff. It might cost you dirty clothes or even ruined clothes if they've done something to them. It, it might cost you sleep in order to forgive them. But that's how forgiveness works. It always costs something in order to let someone else go free. Forgiveness is absorbing the debt on yourself. In order that they might walk away free of that debt. And that's why forgiveness, by the way, is so hard. Like it's really, really hard. We're much better with retribution or bitterness than we are forgiveness. Because when you say, yeah, I forgive you, but you keep holding it over their head, that's not forgiveness. That's called bitterness. Or when you say, don't worry about it, but then you just start like taking their stuff when they're not looking. That's not forgiveness, that's retribution. Someone is going to pay for the damage done. In your roommate situation, it's either them or it's you. And if you pay, they are actually forgiven of their debt. You can't make them pay again. So why the lamb? Back to our story. Here's why. Because Israel was not innocent. And we're not either. And in order for Israel to be spared of God's judgment that was coming against sin, that's what was happening that night. Sin on all of Egypt and Israel. In order to be spared of God's judgment against sin, someone had to pay that night. And the greater the debt, the more costly the forgiveness. And so the dad tells the child, child, it's either... It's either him or it's you. Because a debt against a holy God results only in death of something to resolve it. And so for us, we're not innocent before a holy God. In order for us to be forgiven of sin, someone has to pay. And as the Apostle Peter put it in his first epistle, he says, You, Christian, were ransomed. From your futile ways. And he says, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. In other words, you don't buy God off. But he said, instead, you are ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish. We don't pay God back by paying him off. We are... We're in debt. We don't make up for it by being good with our good record or mission trips or good character or whatever. No, God pays for our forgiveness with the precious blood of His spotless Lamb, Jesus Christ. It's either Him or it's you. The Passover Lamb is our hope of salvation. And if He's our hope of salvation, He's also our assurance of salvation. I'm going to be much shorter with this point. I just want to make one thing so clear. I'm going to share this story with you. I use it with permission from our seven-year-old Lucy. My wife and I, we have two daughters, Lucy's seven, 
she's very sensitive uh, and she's very like spiritually aware. At least she loves to have deep conversations about spiritual things along with other things. She asked me the other night. She said, this isn't a spiritual issue. I guess it could be. She said, uh, how did she say it? How, how do our hearts determine or play into our personality, scientifically speaking? Like, I don't even know what that means. Okay, so the other night, the other night, Lucy and I were laying in her bed at bedtime. And uh, she, she asked me this question, and she really did tell me I could share this story. She asked me this question through tears. She was just crying kind of out of nowhere. And she said, how can I know that I'm going to heaven and not hell? It was just one of those like, where did that come from? And so we start talking about it, and we start talking about faith and some of these issues. We start talking about what trusting in Jesus means. And, and she said so honestly, she said... I try to believe in Jesus, but sometimes it's really hard because I don't see him. And I try, but sometimes it's really hard. And we hear that and we say, yeah, same, right? We can relate. And so I told her that it was okay that she has a hard time believing that I do too sometimes. And that's why faith is called faith. It is Trusting in something outside of yourself. So I gave her the old illustration that we've many of us have heard a thousand times. The, you know, the sitting in the chair illustration. But this time we use the bed because we're lying in the bed. And so I said, Lucy, how often do you try to believe that this bed is going to be able to hold you up tonight? And that in the middle of the night, you're not just going to fall and crash straight through it right onto the floor. And so her tears turned to laughter. And she was like, I don't really think about that very often. And I said, but how do you know it can hold you up? Do you know that it can hold you up? And she said, yeah. And so we said faith in God is similar. We don't always believe with all of our might that God is really there. Or that He really loves us or that He really cares. But He's holding us up anyway. I told her the point is not how strong your faith is, but what your faith is in. How strong He is to hold us up. And she said, that's really good, Dad. (laughs) And she literally said, you should use that in RUF sometime. (laughs) And so I am. Lucy's little thought life is so not foreign to us, is it? Like, we struggle in the same ways. Do you sometimes struggle to believe? Do you sometimes struggle to believe that God is really there? Or that He really is able to save you? Or that He even wants to? So what do you do with that struggle? I want to take you back to Egypt on that frightful evening before this angel of death came, literally looking for blood. The Israelites gathered in their homes. Probably some of them were very confident. And probably some of them were very afraid. I'm sure some had all the certainty in the world that God really would bring them out of Egypt and others had their doubts. They had to, right? Like they had to have their doubts. But they all did what he said, and so they waited. D.A. Carson, who's a a pastor and a um, theologian and an author and all these things, he personifies this experience in a story where he talks about two Jewish men having a conversation the night of Passover. And he says one of them was very nervous 
And he was worried that he would lose his son. He only had one son and he was so worried that he would lose his son. But he's talking to his friend who is just like very confident that God would do what he said he would do. And they're having this conversation the night before. And so the one who is scared says, what are you going to do? Like, aren't you scared? And the guy's like, well, God told us what to do. He told us to, you know, have the milk, put the blood on the door. And he's like, are you going to do that? He's like, yeah, I'm going to do that. But I don't know if it's going to work. And so that night they both go to bed. The next morning, what happened? In every home in Egypt, something died. For the Egyptians, it was the firstborn son. For the Israelites, it was the spotless lamb. It wasn't the firstborn son in the Jewish homes. It was the lamb. Do you hear it? For those who had confidence that God would save them, He did it. He saved them. He did it through the Lamb. And then for those who doubted, who wondered if He could pull it off, who wondered if He even really cared at all, He saved them too. Through the same blood of the Lamb. I can just picture it. The scared Israelite dad in his little home holding his kid, maybe weeping on the floor, scared out of his mind. And the next day, when the angel of death had passed through, he's still holding his son. Carson goes on to say, which of these two men lost their son that night? The answer, of course, is neither. Neither, neither because death doesn't pass over them on the ground of the intensity or the clarity of the faith exercised, but on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. Do you struggle to believe? Do you struggle to trust that God will do what He says He will do, that He can save you or that He even wants to? You need to know that death doesn't pass over you on the ground or the intensity of your faith but on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. The point is not how strong your faith is, but how strong He is. Tim Keller says something so similar. He says, weak faith in a strong object is infinitely stronger, infinitely better than strong faith in a weak object. Listen, our assurance of salvation does not come from anything, anything at all other than The blood of the Lamb. For those of you who are performance driven, you need to know this. This is good news. Because it's true. Assurance of salvation doesn't come from how much you're killing it in your relationship with God. It's not based on your commitment to serve Christ in college or how many campus ministries you go to or how many events you're going to. It's not based on your involvement in RUF. It's not based on how long your quiet times are or how much scripture you've memorized or how many mission trips you've been on or how many times you've shared the gospel this week. It's not based on your moral record of staying away from all these things that all these other people are doing. Your assurance of salvation cannot be based on any of those things whatsoever. They can't stand. But at the same time, your assurance of salvation is not based on how long it's been since you've looked at porn. 
or how you're not sleeping with the person that you're with now like you did last time. And so you feel like maybe you're you're getting better, right? Your assurance isn't based on how well you're doing or how badly you're doing. Your assurance can only be based on, solely based on, the blood of the Lamb that covers the doorposts of your heart. Not based on your badness or your goodness, but based only on the sacrifice that's been made for you. Forgiveness is costly. It's either His life or it's yours. That's your hope. That's your assurance. It's based on the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, is, as Paul says so explicitly, he brings all this together, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, when he says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. This is not a story of what Moses did for God. This is a story of what God did for Moses and Israel that night while perhaps they were shaking in their homes, hoping that he could really deliver them, and and he did. I'll close with this picture. A thousand years later, a thousand years later after God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, they continued to celebrate this Passover meal as God had told them to do. And so every year they would have this meal, usually involved at least three of these kind of main elements, bread and wine and a lamb. We're told in the Gospels that the night before Jesus was crucified, he shared a meal with his disciples. This wasn't just some supper, was it? This was the Passover meal. They have the bread. They have the wine. But where's the lamb? He's at the table. Child, it's either him or it's you. And the very next day, Jesus went to the cross to take on the judgment of his father. In other words, God gave up his firstborn son to save me and you through the blood of the spotless lamb. This is your hope. This is the only basis of your assurance. This is your salvation. Consider it an invitation tonight to trust in his salvation for you, no matter what you're going through, where you're coming from, or what you're trying to put your faith in right now in the middle of this semester, let me plead with you. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Would you pray with me?